Welcome to Dog Talk and Kitties 2. I'm Tracy Hotchner. I love dogs and cats and the people who care about them. Every week, I talk with authors and experts to expand our understanding and appreciation of the animals who share our lives. To hear earlier episodes of this show and download podcasts of other Pet Talk radio shows I co-host with top veterinarians and experts, please go to RadioPetLady.com. Dog Talk is a production of Pet Media Inc., which is solely responsible for its content. The birthplace of this show was WPPB 88.3 from Southampton, New York, and I'm proud to have been on Peconic Public Broadcasting for 575 consecutive shows over 12 years. I also produced the annual New York Dog Film Festival sponsored by the Petco Foundation and the annual New York Cat Film Festival sponsored by Dr. Elsie's Precious Cat benefiting Wynn Feline Foundation. Both festivals are traveling the country, celebrating the human-animal bond while benefiting a local animal welfare group. Learn more at dogfilmfestival.com and catfilmfestival.com. This show is brought to you with the generous support of Waruva, a family-owned pet food company whose owners want to feed their own pets and yours with ingredients that are good enough for people to eat. All the Waruva canned and pouch foods for cats and dogs come in endless varieties to satisfy even the fussiest pets and use the same care and quality ingredients as food for people. The company name exemplifies the Foreman family's embrace of rescuing animals, naming the company after their kitties. W.E. for Webster, R.U. for Rudy, and V.A. for Vanessa. And they are passionate about good nutrition. Their Caloric Harmony Dry Food for Dogs is formulated on the principle of how the body actually utilizes food and the quality of the protein. You'll find Waruva wherever fine natural pet foods are sold. My guests today are Dr. Catherine Prim, who's going to talk to us about the dog flu, which has now hit Brooklyn, New York, amongst other places, even Long Island. Stephen Cosisto will be here with his book, Have Dog, Will Travel, A Poet's Journey, and Jessica Vaccaro will be here, the Senior Manager of Placement with Animal Care and Control in New York City, is going to talk about what her experience was like at Cat Camp in New York. But Dr. Cat, how kind of you to jump out of your usual job as the owner of Applebrook Animal Hospital near Chattanooga, Tennessee, and share some of your expertise about the dog flu with us. Well, thank you for having me. I'm, I'm happy to be here. It's it's a too bad that you have to be a specialist in something which is kind of rare and yet has happened once before where there was a flu, let's call it epidemic, that, that hit hot spots around the country. I remember when it had hit Chicago in particular. This time it has moved um, – Merck Animal Health has let me know this because they're the geniuses who came up with the vaccine that protects dogs against it. But it's it's shown up in Brooklyn and one in Manhattan and one in Long Island, but who knows by the time – this airs maybe more, but certainly 36 cases have been reported in, in Brooklyn. Tell us a little it, bit. It's up of, to 60 now, Tracy. Wow. And that's just since a day ago when yep. I said, yes, give me an expert. And they said, Dr. Cat, she's the one. So yeah. let's, let's, let's talk about this flu and, and, and how it's different from, I don't know, the, the human flu is sort of a ridiculous co- comparison, but yet the idea of vaccination against a flu very much fits in line with the recommendation that all Americans get vaccinated against the the flu they think is going to come. In this case, Merck has made a vaccine that's specifically for this dog flu, right? Well, that's what I was going to point out. You know, every year we talk about and you hear people say, I was vaccinated for the flu and it was the wrong strain right, and my vaccine right. did not protect me. And, and dogs have it better because there are only two strains of canine influenza. And actually Merck's vaccine covers them both. So that's really, really good news. I guess one of the things, the reason that I mentioned Merck, uh, is because most people that are the end users, as it's called in the in the industry, the end users of veterinary products don't really know who has created the tests or the, the vaccines or the cures for various diseases. And I think for me, one of the really impressive things was that the last dog flu outbreak, they were able with the help of the of the human centers for disease control to figure out what this flu strain was and come up with a vaccine, PDQ, 
which is pretty impressive. I don't know how long does it take for the for the human scientists to figure out each year hmm, guesswork of what to come up with. Right. I, I, I thought it was impressive, too. And I think the vaccine and the quick work of Merck and other manufacturers are really the only things that are in between us and sort of a pandemic. Um, the vaccination has kept it from becoming more horrible than it is. Now, the vaccine, it, it's a vaccine preventable flu. So your dog gets vaccinated and they're, then they, if they haven't yet been exposed, aren't going to get it. What I'm wondering is, uh, some of us have been aware of the Bordetella vaccine, which is for kennel cough, and I guess similar in that it's an upper respiratory. However, there are drawbacks to the Bordetella vaccine, in in my view. One is that the dog can shed cells and infect other dogs once vaccinated, and it doesn't really cover the various kinds of cough. Is that right? Well, actually... um that's not true. Bordetella doesn't cause the dog to become infectious, and neither does canine influenza vaccine. So that's important. But they are different things. They are similar in the symptoms that you perceive. And, of course, coughing, sneezing, not feeling good, not wanting to eat, and high fever. Any dog that is exhibiting those symptoms needs to see a veterinarian, whether it's from kennel cough or dog flu. Right. Those are, those are bad symptoms, and the feel, they feel really terrible. So, so let's go through the list of the things that if your dog, it can have one or more of them, right? Or would it have to have more than two or three to, to clearly be infected? Well, there are tests to make sure that it is the canine influenza, but those tests can be somewhat cost prohibitive. So right. we just, uh, we're just trying to get the word out to veterinarians of what to look for and to dog owners that there's a vaccine. So it's, it's so preventable. And if your dog was vaccinated and, and was exposed, either your dog would be completely protected or if not completely protected, the influenza would be much, much less severe. So it's worth it to get the vaccine for sure. And if you're in an area like Brooklyn, or now we're saying Manhattan, Long Island, anywhere in that in that area, the, the whole New York area, your dog has a good chance of being infected if you walk the dog at all. And, and in these areas like Brooklyn, where you have Prospect Park and these very lively dog park areas and open areas of park, if your dog has been walking there, it's all he has to do, please correct me if I'm wrong, is sniff the, is it the saliva of a dog who's already infected? Well, it can be in secretions, coughing, sneezing, saliva. And, and you know, here's the scary thing, and I think this is something people really, really need to know. If you have your dog with you and you stop at a cafe and you sit down in a dog-friendly area, and the dog right before you was carrying the influenza, maybe not even acting sick yet, right. then your dog is at risk. So everybody's like, oh, my dog doesn't go to the dog park. I don't right. need this vaccine. Mm-hmm. But it's out there and you can't see it. And a dog can remain infective for 24 days. So a dog can look fine and still be shedding that influenza. So it's sort of a big deal. It's an extremely big deal. What if your dog has been exposed and then you go get them vaccinated. Like people are listening to this, they're fine. I'm gonna all, let's all call our vets this week and get in for the flu shot. Uh, what if your dog's already been vaccinated, been exposed? Then you're gonna, you, the owner are gonna think the vaccine didn't work, but really your dog was in that, that phase where it's, it's gestating, right? Well, and, and I would say even, you don't know if your dog has been exposed, right. but they, they get sick fairly quick. And I would say if you're looking at your dog and you know that, you guys walk or you live in Manhattan or Brooklyn, I would say go straight to dogflu.com. Okay. It's an amazing resource. And there's even a directory there of veterinarians that are offering this bivalent vaccine. And so you could look and see if your vet's on the list or find someone. You would be able to gain information about dog flu. And all of the little things that we've touched upon are covered there. It's it's really cool. So we have high fever lethargy, loss of appetite, cough, runny nose, and in some cases it goes to pneumonia. As in the in the human flu, are the very young puppies and the older senior dogs more at risk? Yes, I think that if your dog has another underlying disease, the flu tends to be more impactful for those pets. I spoke with a veterinarian who was kind of involved in this um, original, not the Chicago outbreak, but the original one of this strain. And he said that one of his 
personal dogs actually passed away from complications from the flu. He hadn't vaccinated yet. So he said, you know what? I had that vaccine and I didn't give it yet. And I learned a really hard lesson. Oh, how horrible, Kat. That's terrible. I know. It, it breaks my heart. Oh, my golly. Well, let's just talk about how the, the, the scheduling of this because there, you do have to get a booster and you don't get immunity for about two weeks. So can you talk about the scheduling of it, which is why people should go sooner rather than later, because it's not like instantaneous you immediately have a shield around no. you. I wish it was, but it's not quite like that. So what you do is you get the first booster, and then you repeat it in two to four weeks. But after that, it becomes a part of the yearly wellness protocol. So then you just don't have to worry about it anymore. Well, this canine flu bivalent, which covers both strains of dog flu, the H3N8 and the H3N2, what if next year another form of the flu emerges? Would would Merck or other companies come up with a vaccine that covers those two plus? I really think so. The the first vaccines only had the one strain, and then right. when we started to recognize the second strain, they were really fast. So hopefully we just have these two, and that kind of stays sort of uh, static for a while. But I think that if something else rears its ugly head, Merck will stay on top of it for us. So when we say that it's highly contagious among social dogs, meaning dogs who are out in society, if your dog only lives in your house or apartment and never sets foot outside, is it even, which is, I I hope that's not your dog's life. That would really be sucky. Uh, Is it possible for you, the human, to bring in on your shoes, your pant legs, your purse, any place that it, it has come in contact with the secretions of a sick dog? That is possible. And if your dog lives in the house and uses potty pads and never sees another dog, which I agree with you, that's not, that doesn't sound like much fun, but your dog goes to the veterinarian, then that dog sees other dogs and you might've just forgotten that. So every dog is at risk. I have vaccinated hundreds and hundreds of dogs in my animal hospital and I have not had any adverse events. It has proven to be really safe and I do not have problems with outbreaks. Uh, all my boarding dogs, of course, are required to be vaccinated. My kennel has remained canine flu free and so I've, I've found it to be a very effective and worthwhile thing to do. So then let's talk about how the veterinary end handles this and what people should expect from their vet. If I call you up and say, dogs are fine, when can you get me in for the flu vaccine? Fine. But if I call you up and tell you I have any of these symptoms, are you as strict as they were when it first happened? I guess it was two years ago now, where they wouldn't let the dogs come into the into the clinic for fear that it would spread it, that the technicians and the vet came out to the car or the parking lot or what have you to, to see the dog? Is that as strict now? It kind of depends on a case-by-case basis, but I certainly would not put a dog exhibiting the symptoms that you mentioned, lethargy and fever and coughing, sneezing. I would not put that dog into my well dog kennel. I would keep it inside my sick patient uh, rooms and follow the universal precautions for disinfecting. So pretty serious. I mean, taken quite seriously. It's sort of like when humans come into a doctor's office, if you have a cough, not even the flu, put a mask on. You obviously can't put a mask on your pooch. I mean, <laughs> they don't like that. They don't they no. don't appreciate that at all. Um so let's just talk because I mentioned what I had thought was true about Bordetella and if, and I would like to be corrected. My understanding about kennel cough and the requirement by any doggy daycare facility or boarding facility that a dog be vaccinated or I guess there's also the nasal squirt version against Bordetella. I have been told two things, and I would like you to correct them since this is definitely your area of expertise. One was that when the dog is first inoculated, or maybe it's only with the nasal spray, it can shed those cells. In other words, if I want to board with you tomorrow and you give my dog that injection or nasal spray today, my understanding is that it's possible that some of that, the immunity isn't yet in my own dog, and it can shed some of that to other dogs. Is that incorrect? Well, I can only speak for the type of vaccine that I offer. And I use the intraoral one. And so it is not considered infective. The dog is not considered infective from that vaccine. However, 
kennel cough is really complex. It yes. can be it can be caused by a lot of really bad guys that work together to make your dog sick. So it's sort of a catch-all term. We've said, you know what, I've got I a see. coughing dog. I'm going to call it kennel cough. But the vaccine is very specific to just the Bordetella. So I guess it depends on your own veterinarians, the strain that they have chosen and how they administer it. Um, so I would encourage people to ask their own veterinarian about that. Because that, that was the second part of my question is that my understanding was that Bordetella is kind of an umbrella under which there's all kinds of upper respiratory coughs and that the Bordetella vaccine, although required by these facilities, really only addresses one small window right. of it and the rest right. is is up for grabs. So so you're saying there's an intraoral. Is it true that originally it was intranasal? It got squirted up the dog's nose? Yes, it, it is absolutely true, and there still is. I just don't happen to use it because dogs don't like that. Thank you. And, and <laughs> they never have, and it's really important to me that my patients like me. So I use the intraoral one, and it just goes in the little pocket of their mouth above their teeth, you know, in their back, yes, yes. in between teeth and gums. And we can camouflage that with things like peanut butter, and they don't hate it as much. And I feel like the most effective vaccine is one that actually gets in the patient. So Correct. That, that is why I have chosen to use that version. Yes. And then it goes down into, does it go into the, into the bronchi? Does it actually go into the lungs or it just goes into the bloodstream? It is actually absorbed across the mucosa. Right. And um, that is the place where you want the protection because the lungs and bronchioles are lined with mucus and respiratory tract. And so you kind of want to stimulate the immune reaction at that place where you need it. So um, that's why everyone thought the intranasal. And the intranasal is effective. The dogs just don't like it too much. Right. And I'm sure if you have a brachycephalic, any kind of a, a bulldog-type dog, I mean, how do you even find their nostrils? No offense. It's very confusing. <laughs> it's like... Where are, where is their nostril? Where's their face? Where's their snout? You can't hold on to their no. snout. No. <laughs> <laughs> Not at all. But what about the injectable of that? Because this, um, canine flu vaccine is injected. What about the injectable of the Bordetella? You don't use that. So there must be a reason. I, I don't use it because I think that the mucosal immunity is quicker. And more effective. That's not to say that the injectable one doesn't have its place. I right. just, I, for my own patients, I chose, you know, what I would want my dog to have. So if anybody isn't in the New York area, because people listen to the show all over the country, and they're due soon for a wellness exam, while there's many vaccinations that I often counsel my friends who have a five-year-old dog Sorry, I don't think they need a distemper reboot, but that's that's a conversation for another day. And Lyme vaccine, I have my doubts, again, because I had a dog that wound up hospitalized from the vaccination for whatever reason, and it only gives whatever the number is, 50% immunity. However, it seems like the dog flu, there really wouldn't be any reason not to give it. It doesn't seem like it has any downside. And if there is going to be a dog flu with more and more dogs traveling in cars and planes, God forbid, and the various ways that they travel. Um, it, oh, dear. Let's not even go on That's that topic either. That's a, yet another show. Uh, it seems like the, the transmission of these diseases is probably going to become more so. So it seems like it should really, that seems like something, rabies every three years and dog flu every year as kind of no one shouldn't do it. Is that about fair to say? Well, you know what? I, I think that people need to talk to their own veterinarian. because. Of they're the, the ones that know the dog and they know the risk. But in my hands, I have not found a reason not to do it. Now, with that said, we offer all of our vaccines with counseling about vaccines, like what you said. Right. We take into account the age of the dog, the yes. lifestyle of the dog, yes. the exposure. I mean, there is no one size fits all. Correct. And also my region. I don't. Um, personally vaccinate for Lyme's disease because right. unless they're, you know, unless the dog is traveling, I have clients that travel to Connecticut or, you know, right. um, but uh, it's certainly your region, your patient, your right. relationship, their right. lifestyle, you know, mm -hmm. it's not just pop a shot anymore. That's not good medicine. Well, that is really well said and a really good way to wrap up. It has to be your own vet. It has to be your own lifestyle and whatever that dog is going to be exposed to and how high that risk is and 
to the extent that there's any risks of vaccinating, you weigh the two against each other and you obviously don't just poke them to poke them, which used to right. be the, the common, you know, wisdom. It wasn't done to make a buck. It's what everyone believed was in the best interest of the pets. And then, like so many things evolves, that maybe it needs to be much more individualized. Well, Dr. Catherine Prim, it has been wonderful talking to you. The people that are lucky enough to go to the Applebrook Animal Hospital near Chattanooga, they're very lucky to have you as a vet, and we're very lucky Thank that you, you were able to jump on the, the line and give us the, the 411 on this. It's, it's very important that everybody understand the risk is out there. Get the, the dog flu shot, unless your dog's in chemo or, you know, I don't know, six weeks old. At, just ask your, ask vet your vet your dog. Yes. Yeah, and go to dogflu.com to right. find out which vets have it and all this other information. So, yes. Lovely. Thank you so much for being here. Really appreciate it. I'll be right back after this quick word. This show is made possible in part by Precious Cat Litter, owned by Dr. Elsie, who has his own cats-only clinic in Colorado. He has devoted his life to inventing innovative litters for the health of all members of the family, dust-free litter and cat-attract litter that has herbs which draw the cats into the litter box. Now he has created healthy, dry, and canned food for kitties called Clean Protein, inspired by the protein levels found in a cat's natural prey. 90% of the protein in clean protein kibble and cans is animal-based, not the plant-based ingredients in most dry cat food, like grains, potato, vegetables, and fruits, which can actually increase your cat's hunger. The high biological value proteins in clean protein result in your cat's appetite being satisfied longer without compromising her health, making this a healthy dry food for your cat, even as a part of her diet. I am back with Stephen Cosisto and his book, Half Dog Will Travel, Poet's Journey. A truly delicious little book. And I mean little because it's just a lovely little shape and size. It's got a just got a beautiful feel to it. Steve, thank, thank you for being on the show and for writing this love letter to your guide dog, Corky, and I guess to all dogs everywhere in a sense, right? Absolutely, and thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. You have a, already a, a, an important background in having written two memoirs about your blindness as well as being a poet, and you have wonderful kudos and quotes from some other well well acknowledged poets like Billy Collins who's who's been on the show before but i guess the beauty of the book is that to me it seems it's a real exploration into what it is to be human and to accept our frailties and failings and disabilities which aren't necessarily disabilities how much of the book is different for you than your other books about your blindness in the in the talking about your childhood and your parents' disavowal of your nearly complete blindness and and your in in adulthood coming to embrace who you are and what you are failings and all. So, you know, it's funny. This is really a book about Corky. Yes, my very first guide dog, who I got when I was thirty eight years old, which is fairly late in life. I described that meeting as being late to the opera, late to the show, right? I, yes. I came to getting a guide dog really in, in early middle age, and, you know, that's a little late in the game. But the point is that I realized when I set out to write a book that had to do with guide dogs that the very best thing I could do would be to write a book that's reflected in the subtitle of the book, A Poet's Journey, yes. because Corky taught me to be a better person. And so I became more curious, more flexible, more ironic, more emotionally intelligent, more engaged, more open, uh, all because of this extraordinary experience of training with this amazing guide dog and then taking on the world with her and doing things I never thought possible. And so it becomes a book about dogs, but it's also about the inner life of a human being, the yes. inner life of an animal, as I try to understand what that might be. Uh, it becomes about so many things. And yet, to get to your question, I had to tell a little backstory uh, about how you could be 38 and not know how to travel independently, as was the case with me, because that's pretty late in the game to not know how to be out there in the world on your own in a powerful, dynamic way. And though in my first memoir, Planet of the Blind, I talk about my alcoholic mother and, you know, the dynamics she had that were all about not wanting me to be disabled. Uh, the truth of the matter is that that book 
you can't count on somebody having read that book Correct. when they're reading a new book. And so you've got to do some backstory. And in the process, right, um, I decided to kind of let down a little bit of my guard and tell little bits about how deeply alcoholic my mother was and how deeply troubled she was, because that in a way helps to explain how you can defer your own needs. This is a known story to millions of people who grew up in dysfunctional homes. It's a, it's a story that I think children of alcoholics know, the you know, spouses and extended families of people who have addiction troubles. And so the blindness story is it's fully about learning how to embrace a disability, but it's also about the backstory and how you can be slowed down in your progress uh, when it comes to doing the things that are important for you. And, of course, that's part of the story because this dog really let me, you know, take on the world in a big way. And, 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 uh, and a lot of things happen at once. And, and your description of, of that partnership, uh, I've been very aware of, of guide dogs and, and people without sight and the various training programs for a long time. And I am such a sap, Steve, that when I see a dog working <laughs> with a blind person, I just like, I want to cry. I do. I want to cry. I'm so moved and touched. You, you talk about in, in the book, have dog will travel one of the first times or maybe the very first time you're out on the sidewalk and there were lots of guide dog people that had a, an eye out for you but you and Corky were on your virgin voyage and some human said to you what a good looking dog and you look good too and it was like so charming the, the way that this person expressed I think what so many people feel and don't know how to express yeah. and, and shouldn't be interrupting you but it's it's this moment of like, oh, my God, look at them go. Look at them go, you yeah. know? It's it's really, it's yeah. that pairing and that partnership and the, the freedom. You talk in many places in the book about feeling you're going so fast, almost like flying, faster than sighted people, that you're just kind of moving through the world as this unit of, of powerful confidence. And that seems to be how it really feels from your description. That's how it that's really how it feels. You know, you're just moving in this amazingly athletic, focused, secure, dazzling way. And, you know, I, you know, in the opening of the book, which I gather you'd like me to read. A little I would, book, you know, I mean, I, I just, I just keep saying, well, it's not like this. And it's right. not quite like this. Right. Right. Exactly. And I finally, I finally get around to pointing out that it's because the two of you have each other's backs. Uh, the dog is looking out for you, and you're looking out for the dog. There's a tremendous power in this. Well, well this is as good uh, a time as any to ask you to read it. And the reason that I want you to, I usually have people only read from fiction, because nonfiction, there's so many things we can talk about without needing to, you know, have the book read to us by the author. But because you're a poet and because words and ideas uh, matter to you a great deal, I, I think the prologue is just delicious in its depiction of, of Italy, of Milan, of humans in, in crowded situations, and, and the idea that you're going to feel a cathedral door. I, I, I just found it very beautiful and lyrical and poetic, so please read it to us. Okay, so this is a book of what we nowadays call creative nonfiction, and so it's, uh, it's written scene by scene, the way literary uh, nonfiction is, right? This is how fiction is written, too, so... The prologue here is designed to draw the reader in uh, very intimately and right away. So this is how the book begins, the prologue. People ask, what's it like? What's it like walking with a guide dog? How does a dog keep you from harm? Or they say, I don't think I could do that. I mean, what's it really like to trust a dog that way? Truthfully, it's not like anything else. There's no true equivalent for the experience. My wife is an equestrian. Years ago, she was a guide dog trainer. On a horse, she says, you're hypervigilant, aiming to avoid accidents by controlling your animal. Sometimes you and your horse will find a meditative rhythm, but you can't count on horses to look out for you. A guide dog is not like a horse. She looks out for you all the time. What's it like? I can only help you imagine what a guide dog feels like. Say you're in Italy in a swirl of motorbikes. It's Milan with thin sidewalks, confusing street crossings, and barbaric drivers. 
Montana Napoleone Street is crowded what seems like all the people in the world. Let's say you're walking at night to the Duomo with guiding eyes Corky, number 3CC92. Corky does her thing and relishes her job. She pulls you along, but the pull is steady and you feel like you're floating. Her mind and body transmit through a harness and omnidirectional confidence. Why are you going to Milan's famous cathedral with a dog? One of your favorite books is Mark Twain's The Innocents Abroad, which contains passages so beautiful you sometimes recite them aloud. Of the Duomo, Twain says it has, quote, a delusion of frost work that might vanish with a breath. The central one of its five great doors is bordered with a bas relief of birds and fruits and beasts and insects which have been so ingeniously carved out of the marble that they seem like living creatures. And the figures are so numerous and the design so complex that one might study it a week without exhausting its interest. Now it's just you and your dog. You're going there to touch the birds and fruits and beasts and insects carved from marble. Not only are the streets teeming with people, there are skateboarders. Now your Labrador eases left. You hear a clatter of wheels. You think how Milan must be dangerous for skateboarding with its jagged paving bricks, broken sidewalks, and Vespas like runaway donkeys. Motorbikes plunge through crowds. Someone does a dance with death every 20 feet. The city is a fantastic, ghastly place. In the midst of this, your dog is unflappable. Trained to estimate your combined width, she looks for advantages in the throng and pulls ahead because the way is clear, or she slows suddenly because an elderly woman has drifted sideways into your path. Sometimes she stops on a dime, refusing to move, which she does now. There's a hole in the pavement. It's unmarked. There are no pylons or signs. A stranger says it's remarkable there aren't a dozen people at the bottom of the thing. Corky has saved you from breaking your neck. She backs away, turns, then pushes ahead. It doesn't feel like driving a car. It's not like running. Sometimes I think it's a bit like swimming, a really long swim when you're buoyant and fast. There's no one else in the pool. Yes, this is sort of what it's like, but there's something else, a keen affection between you and your dog, a mutual discernment. Together, you've got the other's back. That is absolutely lovely, and, and just as I hoped it might sound read aloud. May I ask if you're reading that with Braille? I'm reading it with a MacBook Pro laptop computer with my left eye about an inch from the screen. Wow. With the, uh, with the print magnified. Wow. An inch from the screen. Mostly you literally I, put your like when you were a boy and your parents refused to acknowledge that you were 99 or whatever percent blind and you said you had to hold <laughs> books up to your face. You literally have to put that one eye right up against the screen? Yes, but, you know, mostly what I do is I read using the uh, onboard voice uh, in the computer or the iPhone or the iPad. And, you know, so I download a book just like you would, but then the voice will read it. So I don't do this a whole lot. Uh, it's too tiring. Oh, my God, it must be terrible. But, uh, but how do you write? Oh, I write using the computer, but I um, I have the voice turned on so I can hear what I'm doing. Oh, uh, although so I you say, type, I and if, if you mistype, does the voice um, go error, 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 or what? I, I make nothing but typos myself. Uh, no, it doesn't do that, but then you run the spell check and it fixes everything. Wow. So you're typing, you know, most people type without having to stare at the keys, which I pathetically do, and then it says aloud what you're typing so you know that it's you've t- typed what you meant to? Right, but you can set it up any way you want, you know. Uh, in other words, it can read letter by letter as you're typing. I can't oh. stand that. Uh, I have it read, uh, at the end of words. So I'll type a word and then it'll read it. Sometimes I turn that off and just have it read the paragraph when I'm done. Good. It depends on my mood. How you can, cool. You can tell it what to do. And when you're writing yeah. poetry, which is much more spare, you do you utilize it in, in a different way? 
No. Um, I think for me the difference between writing prose and writing poetry um, may have more to do with feeling. Uh, I don't know how to describe it, but uh, when I write prose, I tend to feel very fast. Yes. Uh, a bit like that passage with Corky. Yes. Uh, when I write poetry, um, it's as though I've been listening to a late quartet by Beethoven nice. and slowing way down nice. into a state of, of mood and feeling. And then I'm then I'm 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 typing slower. I'm I'm thinking more deliberatively. Nice, know? nice. Well, one of the things I'm sorry to digress to that, but it's just so fascinating to have you read it with such fluidity and wondering how could you do that with your fingers, translating it to your brain and then to speech. But of course, those are many of the challenges that that you've dealt with and overcome in in the variety of technical ways that are available. One of the things that comes out in the book, which I wasn't that aware of, was a newish or evolving idea about training guide dogs from the get-go and then how the handler owner interacts with them on this topic of praise and positive reinforcement and the use of the word good dog in a very enthusiastic way all the time. Now, is this only in your training or does it continue into your overall life with Corky or your newest dog, Caitlin? Oh, no, no. It continues every day. Uh, Guide dogs are trained with praise, and your job when you train with the dog at the school with the trainers who train the dog is to, uh, you know, learn what the dog knows and to employ what the trainers have done. And so you're learning right away about how to praise your dog, how to love your dog, how to reward your dog, because these dogs work, you know, it's a marriage of all kinds of things, of course. The dog has instincts. One of the reasons a dog is capable of, taking evasive maneuvers and not letting you step into harm's way is because it has profound instincts. And, you know, that's to the human being's benefit. On the other hand, right, uh, encouragement and loving praise, loving kindness, as they say in the Episcopal Church, right, is a big <laughs> part of the daily practice. And, nice. And you're never supposed to give that up. So, you know, I got to laughing when I was writing the book because it dawned on me nobody had ever taught me anything about praise as a Correct. Kid growing up. Correct. Right? Mm-hmm. And I didn't learn it in college. We never had praise 101, you know. No, but on uh, the other hand, isn't the so, biggest complaint about millennials is they've been overpraised to the point of exhaustion so that just showing up for a job. They're like, <laughs> fabulous, you showed up. You don't have to do anything. You can go home anytime you want. It's so cool you got here, even vaguely, not even on time. Nah, but I think praise is different. I'm gonna, Yeah, I like that, but I think praise is different from flattery. Yes, you know, yes. But praise, uh, praise, is earned, praise is earned. Flattery is cheap. Right. Well, I mean, this the the thing about us not having been praised in in our generations for every little thing that we did as kids, or some of us for nothing at all, depending on how harsh the parents were. I was interested in your your training week with other handlers who had had dogs previously, had maybe had them since childhood or a long time, and they were grown ups as well, and saying that there used to be a different way of training guide dogs harder, and that. They, these people were now having to learn a different attitude, which is good dog for getting me into the street, good dog for getting me up out of the street, right. good dog for right. not taking me right. down that hole. Right. Did it affect your, your marriage at all? Did you find yourself saying to your wife, good, thank you, for like ridiculously simple things? <laughs> <laughs> well, that, that's a funny question because, you know, the backstory is that my wife, Connie, who I met because of Corky and her black Labrador who was released from the guide dog school, she worked there at the guide dog school. We met because our dogs fell in love. Oh, right? my goodness. And, but, but you know, the hilarious thing is that Connie, uh, when I met her, had become an administrator at the guide dog school, but formerly had been a guide dog trainer. And so, you know, one of the things that trainers will say of the blind who leave the guide dog school with a dog is that, you know, if you don't keep up the daily routine and, you know, stick to the 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 rules of working a guide dog, you can get a little sloppy and, you know, uh, so forth and so on. Well, my wife won't let that happen to me. No, no. (laughs) She'll she'll be walking along and she'll suddenly say, get those shoulders back. (laughs) (laughs) Stand up straight like you mean it. 
Walk with purpose. That's right. Exactly. Well, so we, we've, that's why I was it's, it's, it's wonderful. Steve, we, we've run out of time. Your book is so delicious. There's dozens of topics around the, the, what you've written about that we could discuss, but more important that people buy Have Dog Will Travel, A Poet's Journey, because it really is a life journey of a human being human and, and recognizing all of his humanity along with the brilliance of this one particular dog, but really all of these great service animals. Thank you so much for your beautiful book. Carry on with your shoulders so back. Much for having us. It's a great yeah. pleasure. Take care. I'll be right back after this quick word. Okay. This show is brought to you by Halo, holistic and humane natural dog and cat foods, which are made with only whole meats, never with rendered chicken meal or byproduct meal. There are new formulations at Halo which reflect whole, holistic, and humane practices. Halo says no to factory farming, no to growth hormones, no to antibiotics, no to artificial flavors, coloring, or preservatives in their foods, and sources cage-free poultry, pasture-raised beef, and wild-caught fish. The new Halo has no GMO vegetables. All fruits and vegetables are sourced from farmland that prohibits the use of genetically modified seeds. What's new about Halo will matter to you, to farm animals, and to the planet. This show is also brought to you by Best Pet Rx, a unique compounding pharmacy for pets in New York City. They can turn any medication for dogs and cats into a custom-flavored oral paste, chewable tablet, or liquid. And if your pet won't take it, they'll keep making formulas at no extra charge until you get one your pet does like. So your pet can happily take the medicine she needs to get well and stay well. Best Pet Rx. I am back with Jessica Vaccaro, whose title is Senior Manager of Placement at Animal Care and Control in New York City, which is the city shelter, the open admission city shelter that has gone through such incredible transformations to become a really fantastic place to find animals and for animals to be finding new homes. But Jessica and some other people from ACC went to the recent Jackson Galaxy Cat Camp in New York, and she spoke and most excitingly actually found homes for three of their special needs kitties. So, Jessica, congratulations on all the amazing work you've done and in the whole teamwork you've done in turning ACC in, from its very challenging sort of draconian past into a really vibrant and successful shelter allowing so many animals to find new lives. Congratulations on that, first of all, even before Cat Camp. Thank you so much. We are honored to be invited to places such as Jackson Galaxy's Cat Camp so that we can continue to spread awareness about ACC, who the city, who the city shelter is, and what we do, as well as continue to spread the word. Does it is it a little bit daunting in a city as big and spread out as New York, where there's so many different rescues, um, some of them just little little tiny mom and pop operations, if you will, and others that are actually on the ground, uh, even brick and mortar, to help people understand the the importance and the value and the extra challenge that ACC has, or do you think you've already overcome that? I think we still have some work to do in terms of overcoming that, but we welcome any challenge that comes our way. You know, here at ACC, we are looking to solve the problem of animal homelessness in New York City, and one of the things that we have realized is that it takes a community. This isn't something that ACC can solve by ourselves. Right. It is something that we're going to be solving by forming partnerships with organizations such as Meow Poller, who helped to host Cat Camp right. in Jackson with larger organizations like the ASPCA and Best Friends to our local city officials, every member of the community has in them some capacity to help end animal homelessness. Now, the the Mayor's Alliance for New York City's Animals, which is the, the beneficiary of both the, the New York Dog and the New York Cat Film Festivals that premiere every December in the city, were they originally formed in order to be a support system for ACC? ACC has been working with the Mayor's Alliance for years and years and years, and our current relationship with them is with the Wheels for Hope program, where they are assisting us by transporting a lot of our animals that are placed with rescue groups to their foster homes, um, other shelters, other locations. What's really unique about the New York City relationship with private rescue groups compared to other organizations is that we don't charge any pull fees for rescues to take animals from us. 
we give them animals that are fully vaccinated with a registered microchip, and we, thanks in part to the Mayor's Alliance, will literally drop them off at their door to get them out of our shelter and into hands that can care for them until they're ready to be adopted. That, that, that um, is when, really unique mm-hmm. for, for a city shelter, that to, have, to have the ability to be that nimble, to not only deal with the animals as they come in and then figure out who they are and what, what's the best outcome for them and get them a home, but to actually take groups of them to other shelters and rescues. I mean, that's... That's a lot of balls to be juggling, no? It is, and it was put in place with the Mayor's Alliance and Maddie's Fund several years ago, and it is a program that's continued to be sustained because of how successful it is. We may have a lot of cats or kittens in New York City at a given point, whereas shelters in the Northeast higher up than us may not. So why not take our cats, our kittens, our animals, and transport them to a place that will have an easier time adopting them out? We're very fortunate right now that um, the demand for very friendly cats, kittens, a lot of our friendly dogs is very high. So our adoption program, particularly our mobile adoption program, which travels to different areas in the five boroughs, is booming. So we're really? finding the majority of homes ourselves for these animals. Wow. And we're really relying on our new hope partners to help us with animals that we either can't adopt out because they are underage, underweight, um, or behaviorally they need some sort of training or behavior modification before they're able to be adopted, or animals that just don't show well. Maybe they're very shy. Yes. Or, you know, that owner surrender cat that's never been in the shelter is maybe hissing, striking, but it's yes. a lovely pet once you get it into a home. An animal like that is much best suited for a private rescue with a network of foster homes where people can see that animal yes. shines natural yes. habitat and unlikely to get adopted from the city. So we are relying more on the New Hope Partners to help us secure placement for these pockets of animals that were having a challenging time adopting out. And our placement rate for 2017 was over 93%. That's just humongous. I mean, that's that's an incredible success rate. It is. And, again, it really is because of this community we've created, a community of rescue groups, a community of adopters, fosters, advocates. It's, it's really everybody coming together to help the animals of New York City. So when you go out with your, your mobile adoption event to the five boroughs, you're saying that, that you have great adoption reaction mm-hmm. in, in, these, in these various communities? People are like, I'll take that one and I'll have that one too. And you're like, great, have them both? Absolutely. That's so New York great. City is, it's huge. There are millions of people who live here. And we have full-service shelters where we do adoptions in Manhattan, Brooklyn, and Staten Island. We don't yet have them in the Bronx and Queens, although um, we are getting them in the near future. So what we do with our mobile truck is position it in areas where we don't have an adoption presence because the people who live there either don't know about ACC to come in and adopt, or maybe it's too burdensome for them to take two subways and a bus over Manhattan if they live in the middle of Queens. So we want to bring the animals to them. And then even in the city, you know, if somebody is living in Tribeca or if somebody is living in North Brooklyn, that's a hike to go from those neighborhoods to our shelters. So we do these pop-up events with our mobile truck and are a community resource for people to adopt directly there. And we do anywhere from four to six events a week. A week. My Mm -hmm. goodness. The senior manager of placement, you're just placing left and right. That is so incredible. So Cat Camp, what was the topic that you either proposed to speak about or they asked you to speak about? So we were invited to speak about Cat Camp, which was such a huge honor for us to know that the folks that were hosting this felt so strongly about the New York City shelter system that they wanted us to speak. And we spoke about the different successes and the progress we've made as the New York City shelter system, kind of looking at highlights from 2013 the present day and how our placement rate has grown year after year. And then we dived more specifically into some of those life-saving programs that we've implemented, such as surrender prevention, which is helping people keep their animals versus them ever coming into the city shelter system, focusing on our new hope placements, um, what it means to be a new hope partner, the different how new hope partners can help us, talking about ACC adoptions, 
the types of adoption policies we've implemented that have helped us see adoption rates skyrocket, the support we offer to our adopters, as well as doing a bit of a case study into kitten season of 2017 and how we were able to place 100% of our healthy neonate kitten population. You're kidding which is something we, 100%? Yeah, something we never yep, 100% of our healthy neonate population. That means they all needed bottle feeding. Yes, they all needed bottle feeding. And you got 100% of those little teeny tiny kittens into homes where somebody was willing to bottle feed them pretty much around the clock. Yes, and some of these kittens were hours old. Hours old. Oh, my gracious. Yeah, you're definitely doing an incredible job. You mentioned um, some changes you've made in the the rule, the rules or the regs or the f- registration paperwork that's seen adoption go up. How have you made it more user-friendly or adopter-friendly? Or is it so subtle so, that it's hard to really codify? I wouldn't say it's subtle. Here at ACC, we are a huge proponent of adoptions being a happy, welcoming place where people come in, they're matched with animals, and we make new homes and new families. Yes. It sounds really simplistic when I say it that way, and I think when you say it that way, people are like, of course you do that. Everybody does that. But not everybody does that. No, a lot don't. of people will joke that it's easier to adopt a child than it is to adopt yep. an animal. Yep. And a lot of organizations put up barriers that prevent people from doing adoptions. You have to have your last pet's full medical history. You have to have your lease on you. We have to speak to your landlord a couple of times. And for us at ACC, we are looking to remove barriers. Good. We're not judging people based upon how they did or did not handle owning a pet in the past. We're looking at them as potential owners for our pets and seeing how we can help fill in any gaps they might need in terms of resources or knowledge nice. to help make this adoption be successful. That's, because chances are good, if somebody gets denied at the city shelter, they're going to get a pet free to a good home on Craigslist, yep. get a pet on social media. Yep. I would rather give them an animal that's spayed, neutered, yes, vaccinated, microchipped, yes. and the shelter as a resource, because maybe it doesn't work out, maybe that's not the right animal for them, then they can return the animal, Correct. no harm, no foul. Mm-hmm. We freed up a cage at the shelter for a couple of days, we're able to help a different homeless animal. And now we're learning more information about this animal in front of us that will help us make a more appropriate match to hopefully a forever home the next time. That's a great change of perspective and attitude because, yes, people, especially people from uh, other ethnicities even that, you know, may not understand ideology about, well, what are you going to feed the pet? Well, they don't know. They didn't know anything about feeding the pet yet, right? I mean, I've heard this in, in adoption scenarios where someone doesn't know the brand of pet food they're going to feed, and somehow that makes them a, a bad potential owner, amongst other things. Exactly. You know, these are sort of c- socio-cultural assumptions and attitudes that, that don't benefit the pets in the end, because loving people are loving people. And as you say, if they need resources, if they can't even afford the pet food or they don't know where to get it or how to feed it, you're going to help them by telling them they're not going to get that from Craigslist or, you know, getting one from their uncle's nephew, who then, as you say, has an unneutered, especially cat, which, you know, they can reproduce so quickly that that's one of the problems with kitten season. So, so special needs cats is, and I, as, is a kind of a niche, if you will, mm-hmm. that I think before Lil Bub and some other of these celebrity cats who have, who had something, some genetic anomaly or some, you know, tragedy in their childhood, need the the care the special needs care there's actually a film in uh in the in the traveling new york cat film festival called akmatsu about a man whose cat was hit by a car and it's all and has a little wheelchair and he's paralyzed from the Mm -hmm. chest down and he has this great life and the guy gives him this wonderful life in his little eddie's wheels chair and you know, expressing urine and helping him with these various things and makes it seem like it's not that hard. It's not that bad and it's very satisfying. This was not something that was really on people's radar a decade ago, how to turn your life upside down, if you will, to, to meet the, the, the special needs of a special needs cat. And now it seems to be a niche that that has a lot of people welcoming it. Absolutely. So about a year and a half ago, we started doing a special needs and senior pet adoption mobile extravaganza um, in partnership with the NYPD. So we'll take our mobile truck, sell it only with senior special needs pets, 
Wow. The NYPD helps us with the promotion, and then we go out into the community and do those adoptions. This is the first time with Cat Camp that we have ever been invited to an event where multiple groups are celebrating senior and special needs. Wow. Pets. It's really exciting. We found homes for three of our animals. Amazing. We brought 12 total. And three homes for three senior special needs animals is really terrific because that is the hardest group to adopt out. So we consider that to be a huge win that we found homes for three of them. And when I mentioned earlier we were at 93% placement rate, sometimes senior and special needs, particularly long-term medical special needs, can fall into that 7% of animals that we're still actively Mm -hmm. working to trying to save, but we don't have all of the solutions yet. So events like Jackson Galaxy's Cat Camp are critical to helping to get the word out there, making it apparent that senior pets are wonderful, that they're being celebrated, that there is an entire event donated to them. I think that this will help ACC save more senior and special needs, as well as open up the window to more groups focusing on this. And also more adopters, because without being too cold about it, if it's a senior special needs kitty, the cat's not going to live very, very long. And that person who was that you know, St. Francis-y that they wanted to take the cat. Now they're going to probably take another senior special needs cat because there's this special kind of bond that happens when you know you're giving the golden years some special quality of love and care. So you have kind of built-in return customers because there are people for whom giving that wonderful end-of-life care, even if end-of-life could be a year or two, makes it more meaningful to the adopter. Those, those are very Absolutely. special people to identify, too. I do want to say, um, with, with great appreciation, which I'm sure you share, that the fact that the Petco Foundation came in somewhat late in the game to the, to the cat camp and wanted to make the adoption area completely free because cat camp wasn't cheap. It costs money for a ticket and many other things that you could buy should you want to. And having the adoption area be free so that anybody could spend time in there and go in there on the two days, I think was hugely valuable because if it costs a certain amount of money to go in and people really just wanted to adopt and didn't know what the rest of the hoo-ha was going to be about or didn't want to spend the money on that ticket, they're there and they can meet those cats and dogs well, obviously cat camps, so there weren't dogs, but they can meet them right up close and personal. And I think that that, that has to be a really imp- uh, something for which the Petco Foundation should be especially thanked. I mean, I'm partial given that that they're the, the founding sponsor of, of the New York Dog Film Festival and have enabled it to travel the country. But I do think that actions like that need to be fully understood by people so that they know when they're going to spend their money in a store that they're spending it uh, at a with a brand where a lot of money is being given away in a really meaningful way. We are incredibly grateful to the Petco Foundation for making that possible for Jackson Galaxy's Cat Camp. Um, I'm sure it was a game changer not only for our organization but for many of the yes. others that were there. The Petco Foundation has been wonderful over the years in how they support animal shelters, animal welfare. I can't say enough great things about them. We're, we're happy to consider them one of our partners. That's real. It's really great. And their main focus is adoption, rescue, adoption, rescue, adoption, rescue. You know, is that's where it's going. There's also things like underwriting, all kinds of other things, but that's their main focus. And that's obviously what you wake up and think about every day. I hope you don't go to bed too many nights worrying about that one little cat that's, you know, doesn't show well and god you know it's going to make somebody a happy a happy pet if you can just get them out the door in in good order i think what you're doing is is wonderful what acc is doing is wonderful so how do people i want to put a link with when we podcast this i want to put a link for how people can follow where your pop-ups are going to be jessica because it's you know it's one thing to have them it's another thing to make sure everybody knows when they are even for their best friend that happens to live in one of those areas so we have an interactive map on our website, oh, cool. www.nycacc.org, that shows where the locations are going to be Perfect. for a month at a time, and then every weekend on our social media pages, and you can find us at NYCACC 
whether Facebook, Instagram. Okay. Um, especially on Facebook. Every weekend we'll post where the mobile events are. Perfect. I will put a link in there to that. This is wonderful. I'm really happy for you, just thrilled for you, and, and, and thrilled for all the really positive news that's coming out of ACC for the, the animals in New York who need to find new homes. So thank you so much for being here. And those of you listening, thank you for adopting, not shopping. Kiss your kitties, hug your pooches, and we will talk again next week. Bye for now. Bye for now.